Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. Today we are rewinding back to episode 1128, Listener Calls for 5-10-13, originally published on May the 10th, 2013. So it's actually pretty close to the same time of year that it is today. It's part of why I selected this show for Rewind today. I wanted to talk to you about why I'm doing a Rewind today and why you won't have a Rewind tomorrow. And it's because I'm doing one today. I had a choice. Uh, tomorrow I am cruising down to Corsicana, Texas for the first official Granddaddy's Gun Club Meetup, and I hope to see many of you there. Uh, it's a really cool thing that we're doing, and uh, I really can't do two shows in two days and get out of here on time tomorrow. Now, back in the day when we were doing these shows a few years ago, we always did these shows on Friday shows. So what we do on Fridays now, of course, is Expert Council Q&A. Well, I have enough material from the Expert Council to put together a show for you, and uh, so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to make this rewind real quick. Get this up for you, and uh, tomorrow you'll have a regular episode of the, the show. So only one rewind this week, even though I'm going to be out of here for a few days. Um, when I was doing the show back in 2013, I had a pretty long intro to this one. And I never really covered what we're going to cover, so I figured I'd, I'd give you the bullet points that we're going to cover in these calls today, and I'm going to talk to you um, about a few things that are maybe a little different today than they were before we get into it. So today we're going to talk about the armed march that happened on D.C. from Adam Kokesh. And was that a good idea? And my response was, um, no, nothing's changed about that. Uh, swales and why keeping earthworks to a minimum may not be a good idea. Roof water harvesting and how to do it safely for your drinking water. Uh, you'll hear me say I need somebody to make a model of a swale from PVC. Please don't volunteer to do that. I have the model that works just fine. That was, again, oh, almost four years ago. Uh, and I will tell you... Again, where to get cheap eyeglasses. And even today, this question keeps coming in. A place called Zeni Optical. I'll tell you more about it when we handle that call. What might one do with 50 yards of sawdust? Yards as in cubic yards. Um, a really hard deck question. Are grubs really the garden problem, or is it something called a cutworm and how to know that? The truth about so-called religious discrimination in the military What I think a militia really is and how it should work. I'll, I'll bet you, I haven't listened to this episode myself today, but I'll bet you my, my view of that has changed a little bit as I've moved from minarchist to voluntarist. But I think it's probably still pretty much core at this, the, the, the you know, core belief is probably still the same. Um, when bending a building code doesn't really make sense. So sometimes you think, I don't care if that code's there. Well, there's times when you need to pay attention uh, because it can hurt you long term. Mushroom compost, the good and the cautionary warning with it. Can rights be suspended under martial law? Yes. Should they be? Well, it depends. Can you grow your own soap? Yep. Thoughts on knife carry and lethal force versus a gun. And knives for EDC self-defense and the truth about knives and lethal force. In the, the notes today, if you go look it up, you'll see all of the links that were in there. And one of the things you'll see is a link that says... Um, my primary EDC folding knife. That is no longer my primary EDC folding knife. And you'll also see uh, another knife that says when I want a smaller knife, what I carry. I, I still like both of these knives. Um, the first knife is 
made by a company called uh, Columbia River. And uh, I, I still own this knife. I still occasionally carry this knife. I still love this knife for what it is. It's, it's a fairly large folder. It's an open-on draw. It's called the uh, M2114SF Spear Point. And I have a link to Amazon where you can take a look at it. I'd still recommend this knife for a lot of good reasons. But I have actually switched in my primary knife that I carry, should I ever need a knife for personal defense, to a knife that was designed by Doug Marcardia. And it is a, um, a karambit-style knife, but it's not actually a karambit because it doesn't have a curved blade. It has a tanto blade, and uh, it is called the Dark Knife. And I'm going to put a link to where you can get it. You can't buy these on Amazon. I only know one company importing them from Italy where they're made. They have the Emerson, Emerson Wave feature for pocket draw open that is licensed. It's made by Fox Knives out of Italy, but the uh, Emerson Wave is a licensed patent that they're able to use, which I think is stupid, by the way, that you could, you could patent a notch in a blade, but, but they did, so that's what it is. Um, I'm going to throw a couple cautionary tales, uh, uh, recommendations to you and tell you a funny story. Let's start with the funny story. So when I bought the Dark Knife, and I've bought the original Karambit Fox uh, 5x9 Karambit as well, and I like both of them. I do like the Dark better. I think it's, it's a little bit easier to use and just as effective. Um, I also bought a trainer with it for a good reason. I also bought a DVD from Doug Marcardia about how to use these knives. And some of it's a little bit too flashy and not really practical, but a lot of it's very, very lethal if you ever had a close quarters situation with a knife. And you'll hear me talk about this today, but a knife is something you go to in a defensive situation if you're ethical. If you're walking up behind somebody, stabbing them in the back, you can have any knife in the world. You can have a fish knife and stick it between their ribs and break it off, and they'll die and they barely bleed on the outside. I mean, scumbags with knives can do terrible things. So you don't really need a huge knife if you're defending yourself, because the person has to come to you. You don't go to them. And these knives are fantastic for that. Uh, they can also be used in many ways without deploying the blade as an impact weapon and as a retainment weapon. I, I really like them. However, it is different, and you will cut yourself if you don't train yourself to use it properly. And that's why I highly recommend, even though they're kind of expensive, if you're going to be serious about this new type of knife, get a trainer. Here's a funny story. So last workshop... Patrick Horman came, like he always does, from Empty Knives. And, man, this you know this guy can sharpen a knife. So I hand him my dark, and I say, I want you to sharpen that for me. I want you to sharpen it Patrick Sharp. And uh, he, he touches the blade. He goes, it's not bad now. I said, no, it's not bad, but I want it to be better, and I'm not going to use it for anything at all. It's just going to be carried as a, a, a last-ditch defensive weapon, uh, and I'll carry a different knife for cutting my neck knife or one of my razor blade knives or something like that. And he says, okay. And I see him, like, flip it around in his hand. I said, if you screw with that, you're going to cut yourself. Let me go get you my trainer, and you can play with the trainer. So I went and got him the trainer, you know, and there's a lot of stuff going on at a workshop. But, I mean, I got it pretty quick for him. I'd say 10 minutes later, I came back with the trainer, and he's got a rag on his hand, and he's cut himself on his palm. And, of course, what it was is I'm a knife maker. I know blades. I'm not going to cut myself. Wacky cut himself. He later cut himself with uh, David's freaking... Dexter Cleaver, too, but I think that was something different. My point is, if a guy that works with blades all the time, like Patrick, can cut himself with that knife before it's Patrick Sharp, um, you probably can, too. And if you go check out the ultimateknife.com, I think it's the website. I'll look it up for you. Uh, I'll link to the individual page where you can get the combo with the trainer and the knife, and I think you can get it with the DVD all-in-one. 
I'm not saying buy it. I don't care if you buy it. I don't get any commission if you buy it. I have no relationship with this company. I actually reached out to them about a discount. Uh, and it takes a while to get your knives. They, they tend to be behind all the time. It's, it's a real popular thing right now. So I don't think they're interested in doing a discount. I've never heard back from them. Um, so I got nothing here. But I just wanted to update you that for defensive purposes, that's what I'm carrying. I will have a link to the Cold Steel and Columbia River Technology knives. I also recommend as EDC knives. I think the most utilitarian thing, though, for EDC is a neck knife. And that's, the, that's why I don't worry about having a, an EDC blade that I you know, can carve stuff with or, or whatever because I, you know, I have a whole bunch of Patrick's Genesis pattern knives, and I just love them. And when I get one dull, I just set it aside. When he comes here, I hand him four or five to sharpen for me because I've gotten lazy. And I figure, hey, I buy one every time he comes out with something new to support him, so that's okay. So I wanted to update you guys on that. Otherwise, uh, this show is uh, is going to be pretty cool. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy the new content here at the beginning. Before I bring it on, I want to let you know about something else that's really cool. Um, Paul Wheaton, our own Paul Wheaton, has a really cool permaculture design and appropriate technology course coming out. I did a post on the blog about it uh, two days ago, and uh, it, it, the title of the post is Paul Wheaton's new PDC and permaculture course is awesome. It's got a little video there. He's doing it through Kickstarter. They've already met their goals, so all of this stuff is going to be delivered. Um, it is a really great opportunity uh, for some of you that want a PDC but don't want to pay a lot of money for it. It's, it's a good opportunity there, and it's, gonna, it's being taught by a whole group of amazing teachers. Uh, if you don't want the PDC, if you just want the appropriate technology course, which is things like rocket masticators and stuff like that, you can just get that. He's got a lot of stuff you can participate at, like $10. Bucks. Uh, you should take a look at it, see if there's anything there you want to add to your you know, intellectual toolkit, I guess you'd say, in the permaculture and sustainable technologies world. Um, just just go to the site. I'll have a link in today's show notes to the post about it as well and directly over to his Kickstarter. Um, but if you look at the lineup of instructors he's put together, it's pretty fantastic. You will be able to get it as recorded and delivered to you as downloads, or you'll be able to get it live streaming or both. And again, you can kind of piecemeal pick what pieces you want and don't want. He's done a great job with this, and uh, he's a good buddy of mine, and uh, he's been good to our community. So this would be a good thing to consider supporting him with and getting a hell of a return. This is a hell of a value-for-value value exchange. Check it out again. Paul Wheaton's got this new PDC and permaculture course. It's awesome, and I'll have a link in the show notes. Otherwise, let's go ahead back to uh, May the 10th, 2013. And I think this is the first rewind that I've played that actually happened here at Nine Mile Farm and TSP Ranch. Show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May 10th, 2013, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, it's Friday. That means it's time for your calls to 866-65-THINK. Again, the number 866-65-THINK. If you call that number right now, you will not hear me say, Hello, this is Jack. I'm ready to take your call, because this is a pre-recorded show. You'll get a voicemail. You'll leave it, and maybe you'll be on next week if you follow the instructions to be on a show like this. Instruction number one, if you're calling from a cell phone, make sure you have signal. Do not call with the window down in your vehicle running down the road, running a weed eater or a chainsaw or driving on a motorcycle. Find a quiet area to make that call. 
when you call in. Have your question in your head before you call. Know what it is or your statement or your observation. Don't give details and then provide the observation of the question. Do it the other way around. Make your point very quickly or ask your question very quickly and then give me your details. I'm not being a jerk here. I'm just telling you, after doing this now for five years, that's how it works really good and that's how you're likely to get me to screen your call and go, gee, I'm going to put this one on the air, so I'm trying to help you out. And we go with the first call. Hey, Jack, this is Nick from Cincinnati. Great show, man. Keep up the good work. Just wanted to ask your opinion on the... Adam Kokesh's planned armed march on Washington on 4th of July. Look forward to your response. Thank you. Uh, this is the first I heard about that. I, I like Adam. I wouldn't call myself a fan because I don't pay attention uh, a lot to what he's doing. But the few times I've seen things by him, I've always been entertained, informed, and sometimes enlightened. And I like him. I think he's a very likable guy. Um That said, I think this is a really stupid idea. Basically, everybody that takes part in this will be a felon the minute they get across the bridge from Virginia to D.C. Here's what the plan is. There are going to be a whole bunch of people that are going to open carry loaded weapons, uh, which is legal in the state of Virginia. And they're going to walk into the district. And Adam says if they meet any type of physical resistance, they'll just turn around and go back. Um God, I hate, you know, anybody that's a fellow warrior for liberty, I hate to kind of, you know, put the kibosh on anything they're doing, but don't get involved with this. Because let me tell you what I would do if I were law enforcement in D.C. and I wanted to, I wanted to get the maximum bang for the buck out of this. Um, let's say that I was a security guard in a, a store and uh, you were going to, through the store and sticking stuff in your jacket, your shoplifting. Do you know what I do if I do my job right? I don't grab you in the store and detain you because you haven't actually done anything illegal yet. You're still in the store. I know you don't think this is connected. Some of you guys, some of you with a law enforcement background or a legal background, you know exactly where I'm going with this. Okay, so I don't do that. You know what I do? I watch you. I tell you. I wait till you leave the store. Then I apprehend you and call the police because now you've actually shoplifted. It's actually not illegal to take an item in a store and put it in your pocket. As long as you pay for it before you leave. Maybe you were just, and that's the legal defense an attorney would use. But he wasn't going to steal it. He just didn't have his hands free anymore and he stuck it there. He was going to, when he got up to the counter, he was going to put it up on the counter and pay for it. And I think a lot of people don't know that. And I mean, the one time I served on a jury, that was exactly what happened. And they tried to prosecute this, this kid anyway. It was, uh, it was a 19-year-old kid or something like that, and he had stuffed some stuff up under his shirt. Now, he was clearly stealing it. There was no doubt that his intent to steal was there, but as a jury, we were presented with, well, my client never left the store. And what the technicality was, they said, well, he was on the other side of the register, but he hadn't paid for anything yet, and he had some items in clear view, and his story was, well, I was going to go back and pay for that. And... He was dumb enough to say that, and as attorney, you could see him cringe, because what he should have just said is, I didn't steal anything, I never left the store. That was the attorney's case. And the whole thing didn't take very long, and then when we went back to deliberate, that was, I mean, we just looked at it and said, the way we understand the law, based on how it was explained to us, and when we look at this case here, until he actually leaves the store, he hasn't stolen it yet. Every single person on the jury thought, Yes, this kid intended to steal, but he wasn't being in charge with intent. He was being charged with having committed theft, which he had not done. 
So we found him not guilty. And the judge even said, you guys did a good job. You know, we, we all know what was going on here, but there was no law broken. This should have never came before the court. That's what the judge said. So how does that relate to this? Okay, they're not going to stop this on the other side of the bridge where no crimes are committed. They'll, they'll let everybody across, likely, and then round everybody up. Dangerous and dumb because you got a whole bunch of armed people, but that's probably what they would do. They could even do this. <laughs> You're in a public place. There's no, there's no laws to prohibit wiretap, you know, tape recording and, and audio recording. They could let them do it. They could film every single person that did it and then go out and get an arrest warrant and do it under federal law because it's multi-jurisdictional. It's from, from one state to the district, so it's almost like multi-state and prosecute under federal felony every single person that takes part in this. And if, you have anybody with any common sense of the law, they're going to say the law was clearly violated intentionally. And you're risking losing your rights and your freedoms to make a statement by breaking the law in a very serious manner. I think it's a dumb, dumb, dumbass idea, and I really wish Adam would reconsider it. I think there are other ways to make this statement. This is not a good one to do. Um, Explain, I'll explain it in a totally different way to take out the emotion. We should be able to do whatever we want. Okay, in Texas, um, we can carry handguns concealed with a, with a concealed carry permit. We do not have allowances for open carry of handguns in the state of Texas. Can't do it unless you're hunting or, you know, what have you. But you can't go walking down a street strapped with your 45 on the outside of your clothing Even if you have a carry permit, not only does it have to be concealed, it has to be properly concealed. And if it's exposed in any way, it's considered brandishing, and you can both be arrested and lose your right to carry over it. Okay? I know you're not supposed to be able to lose a right. I understand the Constitution here. I get that these laws are uncut, but they're, they're in existence. So um, if you decided to just go, I don't think that law is constitutional, so I'm just going to go walk down the streets of Texas with a gun on my hip, um, you're going to end up in jail because you violated the law. This is no different. This is no different. And it's a dumb freaking idea. Adam, please reconsider. Folks that know Adam, please tell him Jack says this is a dumb idea. And it's not personal. I really love the work that I've seen from Adam. I just think this is going to end up with a lot of people federally charged with a federal felony. And I don't think that's something you want on your resume, guys. Let's take another one. Hello, Jack. Long-time listener, first-time caller from sunny Ontario, Canada. Quick question on uh, swales. Uh, here in Ontario, we get about three inches of rain per growing month. Um, I have a catchment of a large barn between 4,000 and 5,000 square feet that I could be using. I have sandy loam soil and a slope of about 15 to 25 degrees in any given area. Uh, my intention is to put a small orchard slash food forest with some uh, annual and perennial vegetation. I'm just wondering, given the amount of rain that we do receive and given the snow cover during the winter, um, I'm wondering the utility of actually putting in swales for water catchment. Is this entirely necessary? Or would you suggest simply doing a raised bed on contour? The slope may prove to be a bit of a problem at that angle, uh, I might have to do terracing, but I'm trying to keep the earthworks down to a minimum. So perhaps you can just comment on that. 
Second of all, I would like to uh, quickly mention uh, MSB for Canadian and international members. Um, I joined the MSB a while ago. I don't regret it. It's just that a lot of your sponsors uh, and a lot of the benefits do not ship or provide uh, shipping for uh, to Canada or internationally. Um, I will most likely join the MSB again just simply to support the show, but I was wondering if you could maybe consider uh, hitting up some of your sponsors to start considering a broader, more international audience and uh, clientele. Thank you very much, Jack. Keep up the great work. Well, when you get into slopes of like 20 degrees and more, you're either terracing or you just leave it alone, and, and, and swelling definitely works. With that level of slope, the problem is with all that water, you'll have pretty severe erosion if you don't do something to mitigate it. Um, in your climate, you probably could just plant, right? You probably could just put a good polyculture in there and uh, maybe do a little bit of irrigation in the first year or two and get it established, and it'd probably do fine. Um, you're not dealing with the heat that I have. You do have a lot of snow cover, but, you know, the, the swelling will work. And I, when people say they're trying to keep earthworks to a minimum, it always kind of bugs me a little bit. Here's why. Um, I can come in and do two days' worth of work with uh, a piece of heavy equipment for about $500 to $1,000, okay? And I can do a lot of work for $500 to $1,000, or I can do a little work for $500 to $1,000, And I'm going to pay $500 to $1,000 for that piece of equipment to be there for a couple days, whether I do a lot of work or a little work. So why do a minimum when the cost is the same and the effect is greater if we do more? So first thing I'd say is try to, try to, try to mitigate your concern. Earthworks, especially swelling, are the, some of the most cost-effective things that you can do, and the effects will be with you for a long time. Now, the other reason I wanted to do this call is it gives me a chance to teach you guys something that if you remember it, you'll be able to use over and over and over again in designing water catchment systems. And I'm not going to talk about that much right now because the next question actually is on water catchment just for the purpose of water catchment. But here's the formula. For a 1,000 square feet of roof, because roof's 100% runoff. It doesn't soak at all, right? If you have a roof that's soaking in, it's a broken roof. So per 1,000 square feet of roof, you get about 500 gallons per inch of rain. That's a very interesting formula because it's very easy to work with zeros. So 500, when I mean zeros, I mean numbers that end in zero are easy to add together, right? Um, <laughs> I'm just thinking, I, I, there's a show I used to watch. My wife really liked it more than me, but most people have seen it called Friends. And I don't even remember the exact numbers, but the guy, Joey, that's an actor, was teaching an acting class. And when he said he wanted to look like he had just had really bad news, it's like, all I do is try to divide 1,385 by 642 in my head. And uh, he just looks all <laughs> But when it's all zeros and you're adding it together, it's pretty, and doubling and tripling is easy, right? So if you know that 500 gallons come from one inch on a 1,000 square feet, and we want to calculate how much rain that this guy's getting on his 5,000 square foot roof, well, then we know that we have 500 uh, per inch, per 1,000. So 5 times 5 is 2,500 gallons per inch, right? And then we have 3 inches per month. All right, so we got about 7,500 gallons, give or take a few here or there. So it's about 7,500 gallons of catchment off of that roof that could be channeled and controlled and put into the landscape instead of just running off and doing all kinds of erosion and other things. So it's certainly worth 
doing. And if we have, let's say, a five-month growing season, we're looking at 35,000 to uh, 40,000 rough gallons, somewhere in 35 to 45,000 gallons of water. That's a lot. That's even making me think maybe we put in a couple catchment tanks um, and we overflow them, and the overflow goes into the swell system. That's how I would personally do it. And I would tell you that it's almost always worth doing the extra effort when you're putting swales in to have whatever comes off a roof end up in those swales and controlled. Almost always. Even if you have to put a little bit of extra effort into it. So I would probably say it's a perfect situation to put swales. And I would stop worrying about minimizing the earthworks. And I would start worrying about if you're going to do it, And you're going to bring in a piece of equipment, anything from a mini to a large excavator to do this. And for the type of system you're talking about building, you probably could do this really easy with the small excavator. Um, and we got a rate of $160 bucks a day, and I think we got it for $400 a week for the one we're bringing in for my workshop. So I don't think the cost is going to be much different. Then you need an operator if you don't know how to run it. And uh, you know, an operator is going to run you between $150 and $300 a day, depending on who you get, how good they are, and how busy they are, and how bad they want to work. So this is the inexpensive work to do a two- or three-day project. And I'm going to tell you, if you want to bring water tanks in, do all this crap at once. It'll It's so much easier. Um, at least level the spot for your water tanks and things like that uh, while you've got the equipment there. And uh, I definitely think I would do that. On the comment about you know people from Canada, people from the United Kingdom and things like that, and, and sponsorship, I can't ask my sponsors to do things that are um, not profitable. I can't ask them to do things that don't fit their business model. And my experience with international shipping was not good with, uh, with the first generation of the gear shop. It, it, it was really expensive and cost prohibitive. And, and the main reason that a lot of people won't do it is they do it and then the customer turns around and goes, I can't believe how expensive the shipping is. Well, I... You know, we don't control that. Um, so, And it also gets into issues with customs, especially with a lot of people in, in our niche, because you got the, kind of the tactical vibe. Some of these people sell weapons, and even if they're not shipping weapons, it's kind of an issue there, and seeds. And then there's, with seeds and international shipping, there could be some issues with what is permitted. Some countries you can ship to, some countries, it, it gets to be kind of convoluted. I would say that a better way to approach this would be, well, you tell me who you deal with, and uh, I can approach them about a discount. So you tell me who you do buy from in Canada. The, the three big ones would be Canada, the U.K., and Australia. Here's the other side of the, I mean, I'd love to do just wave a wand and fix this, right, and, and make this better for international people. But the problem there then becomes, well, when I approach the person in the U.K., And they say, you know, you have several thousand people in the MSP. And I go, yeah. And they go, well, how many people are in the UK? Oh, no, two dozen maybe. And it's not that big of a value proposition now to the vendors. So that's, that's kind of where we are. But I'll try it. If you'll tell me I buy from X or Y or Z in Canada, you know, I, I can approach them and say, would you be interested in doing this? I just don't have a very strong value proposition to them. So that's it's kind of the chicken and the egg thing going on there. And I'll do what I can. And I'm trying to find more people that maybe you can buy from that, that shipping is not that an issue. It big an issue. If you're buying from an, an online technology product, for instance, uh, that doesn't really matter. Jeff Lawton's PDC, that was 
something I was able to do, and that's 150 bucks to save people. So I do what I can. I wish I could do a better job, but I'll be honest with you, it's a tough situation because my sponsors and vendors here domestically uh, often find it's not financially worth the effort, uh, and I can't ask them to put their business at financial strain just because I want them to. It's not fair to them. And, again, the value prop on the other side of the pond or the other side of the border isn't really there. Canada, I would think, would be an easier place to ship to. But, uh, in the end, I have to defer to my sponsors and their knowledge of their business. Uh, thank you for your call. Hey, Jack. This is Keith. I have a question regarding rain catchment off a roof. If I wanted to build a small cabin or shed-type structure and catch water off the roof, rainwater, would you advise to use shingles or maybe a metal roof? And is there any concerns with collecting water off, off either? Preferably the shingle roof, uh, any leaching in the water, would it be okay to drink it? Uh, you need to go through some type of filter would that make it safe? That's my question. Thanks a lot. Oh, short answer is use a metal roof. It's just less risk and easier to keep the water clean. Um, you can do rain catch off asphalt roof. Uh, you can set the system up so you can make the water drinkable, but there's more concerns and, and more risk. Let's just start off with what you want to do if you want water that you might use for drinking purposes with any situation with the roof. You want to use what's called first flush diversion, which means you have a, and there's systems you can buy pre-made or there's tons of stuff on YouTube of how to do it. Um, what you have is a vessel, let's say, of 50 gallons. And the first 50 gallons of water goes into that vessel, and when it gets to a certain point, you there's a counterweight or some way that it tips over once it's full, and it tips over, moves out of the way, and now the rest of the water now can go into your catchment uh, vessel, your, your you know 1,000-gallon or 5,000-gallon, whatever it is, tank that you're actually going to actually hold your water in. And that means that a lot of the crap and garbage and sticks and bird poop and squirrel crap and whatever else is up there comes off in that first 50 gallons, is diverted away, and then the rest of the water is is saved. And, and that goes a long way because the rainwater itself is, is as safe to drink as anything else you're going to find on planet Earth. I'm not saying it's perfect because there's shit in our atmosphere and all, but you're breathing that. Um, so that would be pretty safe water right at that point. But now it's got to be stored. And unlike the water that you put in the two-liter soda bottle that you've rinsed well out that I tell you can never go bad, that's not the case here because we have some things are going to be in that water off of that roof, and they might have the potential to be harmful. So we're going to want to filter that. I've seen good systems where the water basically filters through sand, and then it's filtered one more time. Uh, by something like a Berkey or equivalent before it's actually consumed. And that's about as safe of water. It's, it, that water would be, I would consider that just as minimal risk, especially off a metal roof, as I would water from your municipal source. There's no guarantee that the water from your municipal source hasn't been contaminated. There's been plenty of people made sick by failures of the municipal water supply. Um, so there's no such thing as being completely risk-free. But that would be you know, definitely something you could rely on. Um, and people do this all over the world. There's places where that's where your water comes from, and generally you want to use a metal roof for this. 
the asphalt has two problems. One, it's got all these little crevices. I mean, you look at asphalt shingles, it's got all these little crevices and crooks and things like that where stuff can kind of grow and, 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 and breed and, and multiply. If it stays wet in a little pocket, you know, there's little pathogens and things that can grow in there. And a metal roof, conversely, doesn't have all that. It's pretty smooth and it sits there in the sun and it bakes. And it dries really, really fast. There's no little pockets for water to hang out. Um, so that potential of pathogen growth is reduced. But the other thing is, have you ever been on an asphalt roof when it's 110 degrees outside? It, they, it weeps tar and gunk and, and the little pieces of the, the, the shingles over time break away. And they're bringing their own little toxic friends with them when they come. So it's not that you can't do it. It's that you have more to worry about. You have more to worry about filtering and, I'd be more inclined to want to boil water as part of the process if I'm going to drink it that comes off an asphalt roof. I, if it's been filtered even through a sand filter, I, I would have no problem probably bathing in it or, or anything like that. But I'm probably not going to drink it without uh, at least considering uh, situations uh, with, uh, with boiling it. But at least I'm going to have it tested before I'm willing to, to drink it. Whereas if it's off a metal roof and it's been filtered, I'll drink it tomorrow morning. I'll drink it right now. Um, it, it's just, a, and I, I can tell you again, it's done on asphalt roofs all over the world. Just with what I know about asphalt, uh, I, I'm just a little bit more concerned. So in your situation, you're, you're building the building, right? So you know you have the choice right now. So a metal roof will last longer. Uh, it's actually easier to install if you're doing the work yourself. It's, I, I would much rather do a metal roof if I'm doing the work myself than shingles. Um, it might cost a little more, but it's easier to do. Um, and it's going to be a better tool for the job, so to speak. So I would definitely go with a metal roof in that situation. In my instance, I have a fairly large home that's asphalt, and I have two outbuildings with metal roofs. Guess which ones are going to be eventually used for water catchment, specifically water catchment that can be used as potable water if necessary, the metal ones, right? So I would go with the metal roof, and I would definitely put in first flush diversion. Uh, it's something we're looking into exactly how we're going to do it with our first water catchment project here this summer. And uh, I will make that available when we figure out what our solution is going to be. Uh, next call we'll take now. Hi, Jack. This is Gail DeCalio from YouCanHomestead.com. I just had a couple of things I wanted to say. First of all, I wanted to thank you so much for those permaculture videos you're doing. I just uh, com finished watching the one on swales, and I finally understand it. <laughs> Everybody talks about it, but nobody actually explains it. You're a great teacher. And uh, second, I, this question is totally different, but the question I'm calling about is, I heard a podcast uh, probably a few months back, and you were talking about where you order your uh, glasses from online, reading glasses. And uh, I'd really love it if you'd mention that again because I I don't remember which podcast it was, and I didn't write it down. <laughs> and uh, I could really use that service right now. But thanks for everything you do, Jack. Your uh, podcast means a whole lot to me, and I've learned a lot. And I highly suggest that everyone goes and watch those permaculture videos. Thanks. Bye-bye. Uh, thanks for the call. Let me, uh, let's start out with the glasses thing. And the reason I wanted to make sure I played this call and answered that is because I probably get an email a week going, Hey, one time you were talking about this place. And, uh, the place is called Zini Optical. And it is, uh, 
It is spelled Z-E-N-N-I, Zeni Optical. There's a link in the show notes, but it's not an affiliate link or anything. So if you, you want to you can find it, you can go to the show notes or just type in Z-E-N-N-I optical.com or just put Zeni Optical in Google and they'll, they'll find the site for you. But let me just say, I think it's one of the greatest resources in the world. And there might be another place you can buy glasses this cheap, but I don't know about it yet. And I can tell you the glasses that I've gotten from Zeni are great. Um, I've even like, You know, getting an optometrist who really knows what they're doing to fit your glasses for you, I've been willing to go into, you know, uh, an eyeglass shop and, and give a person five bucks to, to, to adjust them perfectly um, in, in one instance because the one pair was a little hard for me to adjust myself. The rest of them I've been able to just use a pair of needle-nose pliers and uh, a little hot water to adjust the temples. And um, I've got a set of glasses that I bought three uh, pairs of there. I think I paid... 12 bucks a pair. And then I have a pair that's like really nice. I mean, these look almost exactly and the ones I wear every day. They look almost exactly like the ones I bought from my eye doctor um, with the uh, scratch resistant, smudge resistant, best lens you can get. The light, they're lightweight lenses that change color and, and darken outside. Uh, half frame. I mean, they, this is, you know, decked out to the max. I think I paid. 65 bucks for those, 65 or 70 bucks for that pair. And I think I bought the same equivalent pair from my optometrist for almost $400. So I'm thinking this is a good deal. The real exciting part to me, though, is the, you know, being able to buy pairs of glasses for eight to 12 bucks. And they're, they're good looking glasses. I mean, the lenses really on the one pair that I wear every day are really what were most expensive. Um, the frames even were not expensive, but here's my deal, right? Two is one, one is none. Three is for me, four is, I don't know, four is some more, five is the jive, I don't know. We came, Steve and I came up with something that went all the way up to seven. But uh, if you have need of a pair of glasses and they're broken or lost, having a pair to go grab as a backup is a great idea. And what most people do, and I was guilty of this for years, is you get a pair that gets kind of old and scratched and you don't really want to use them anymore, those become your backup when you buy a new pair because they're so blasted expensive. Um, then you lose your glasses, if you're like me. I'm the kind of guy that plays something down and I just, where, honey, where's my coffee? I've lost, I mean, I tell you twice a week, I'm asking my wife what I do with my coffee. Um, when you don't have your glasses and you wear thin frame, uh, small, format glasses and they're in a kind of a dark room somewhere and you don't have your glasses finding them's hard because you can't see them right so it, when that happens now i just go into my nightstand and get out one of my extra pairs if i'm and i have now i've got i went and bought more i've got a pair of glasses in every glove box of every vehicle that we own i've got a pair in my toolbox if i find my because some i don't have that poor of a, a vision that i can i can get around i wouldn't drive without my glasses but i find myself guarding and stuff without glasses all the time so if i'm out and i'm going to work with tools you know you got glasses on i mean it's not the same as safety glasses but at least your eyes are protected and you can see what the hell you're doing um and you know if i need them and i'm out in the shop they're there So I, I do use safety glasses when I'm doing anything, you safety freaking nerds, when it's anything I consider really risky. But I like to, even if I'm just you know doing some basic stuff that, generally speaking, all but the safety weenies don't worry about safety glasses with, I like to at least have some glasses on so I can see, so I don't like put the screwdriver through my hand or something like that. So I have a pair in my, uh, in my, my, my toolbox, 
and I have a pair of my tackle box that I take fishing with me. Um, that I, and I have the pair that I have in my tackle box have the transitions lenses. Uh, that way, if I'm out fishing, I have sunglasses. And I'll tell you, uh, having that redundancy in something as important as your eyesight and being able to have, like, you know, I think I have, take away the, the, the really nice pair of glasses. I think in all of that, I have less than $100 invested, which I can't get one pair of glasses from an optometrist for. Great resource. Some people crapped on it last time. Like, They make lenses in China. I don't care. I, I don't really. Not, not, not when it's something that important, and I get great quality out of it at the same time. And I give out your doorknobs made in China, by the way, the people that say that. Or I'm going to put eye doctors out of business. Hey, you know what? If my eye doctor wants me to start buying my glasses from him again, he can make a profit. I'll pay him more than Zini. I'll pay $120, $150 bucks for that pair of glasses that I could get for $60, and I would do that and shake his hand and not support a small businessman, but not $400. Bucks. Other side on the uh, the permaculture videos, I'll put a link in my. I have a 16 part series. Uh, some of you guys were going, well, I can't afford the Jeff Lawton thing. Have you watched all 16 of my videos? The first two or three have some crappy audio, but it gets better from there. And I, I'm not going to redo those. And I'll add more to that. Uh, we'll start doing that as soon as I get some free time. And I want to take that series up to about 50 videos. So that's available. And the other thing I wanted. Um, so many people have told me in that video on swales, the second one I did on swale hydrology, I finally get it, and a lot of people still don't. I need some help. I need somebody out there with some tools and some uh, understanding of how to use them to make me a model of a swale. Here's what I have in mind. Get about a one-and-a-half to two-inch piece of PVC pipe and caps and cut it about three feet long. Put the caps on it with PVC cement. And then cut it perfectly in half for me. So you make basically two. You can keep one. Then I need a perfectly level. See, a three foot, I need probably about four inches to five inches long. And I want you to remove dead level about a quarter inch from one side. If you, if you want to do this and it's not clear what I need, get in touch with me. I'll buy it from you. I'll pay you for the work. You can keep one if you think it's cool. But basically I want to make a hard copy of a swale that I can put colored water into so it's highly visible and overflow it. So people will actually understand how it works. If you know how swales work and you can build that for me, get in touch with me. I will buy it. I will pay for the materials. I'll pay the shipping. I will pay you for your labor. I need one of those for my workshops and videos because I'm going to tell you the thing about this. Most people don't get swales and when you do, when you actually understand them, and I think this model will make it so that people can understand Understand it, you, it will change forever the way you think about designing landscapes and designing sustainable agriculture. It's, it, and even if you don't want to grow food, to understand what you can do with water in a landscape by pushing it around and controlling where it discharges um, is an incredibly great idea, incredibly great skill, and an incredible, incredibly great piece of knowledge to have. So if someone can build that for me, a three, basically a three-dimensional scale model of a swale out of a piece of PVC pipe. I'm thinking two inches, maybe even three inches or four inch pipe. Maybe four inch pipe is the way to go because it would be a much bigger thing. Get in touch with me if you want to take on that project and build that for me. And you'd be able to build two. Actually, you'd be able to build about four uh, if you wanted to get an extra set of caps. And uh, you can do whatever you want with the other ones, and I just want to buy one from you. Anyway, uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Mark from uh, New Jersey. I wanted to ask you about sawdust. I have um, access to about uh, 
50 yards of sawdust from an old um, furniture company that uh, someone bought the building. Just wondering if it's any good and what I could use it for. Give us some uh, comments. Thank you. Love the show. Well, 50 yards is a lot. Um, That's like, oh, gee, four to five big dump truck loads. So think really hard before you take it all if you can figure out, you know, do you have a need for that much of it. I don't really like sawdust for mulch in a garden because it's so fine and it, it kind of binds up a little bit. It is great for mulching pathways between gardens. And it's wonderful that for that if you have slug problems because slugs freaking hate sawdust. I mean, it just, it's like, I don't know, it's the slug's equivalent of having somebody force you to drag all ten of your fingernails down a chalkboard while listening to Rosie O'Donnell bitch about guns at the same time. I mean, that's how bad it is. They hate it. So uh, it's great for that. Uh, again, pathways and spaces. It's good for composting. It's carbon. Uh, so if you have a source of nitrogen like manure, it's a great composting aid. The only thing you want to be sure is it's not a large amount of sawdust that comes from black walnut. Uh, or black locust, and that's probably not the case anyway. So as long as that's not the case, you don't have a lot of allopathic properties there. Some people say it's acidic because it's pine. Pine wood is not acidic. Pine needles are done, and I'm not even going to debate that with you. Um, pine is not acidic. Pine needles, green ones, are acidic. So there's no no worries about that at all. Some will say it leaches nitrogen. Not true. It doesn't leach nitrogen. It bonds with nitrogen, traps it, and releases it slowly over time. Same as wood chips. But I don't really like sawdust as mulch. So um, for your pathways it is a good idea. And uh, for your, uh, for your uh, composting, it would be good. There's some other things you can do with sawdust. I just don't know that you need 10 freaking yards of it to do this. Um, but it's a really good thing for soaking up spills. If you spill oil or gas or something like that um, and you need to get rid of it like on your garage floor, it's a great thing for doing that with. Um, it is. You could make fire starters, but, boy, you could make a lot of fire starters with that much. But um, if you could come up with a really cheap source of wax, you know those fire logs people spend a lot of money on? Some kind of a press? You can almost go into business for a while making, you know, wax and wood logs or some type of fuel or fire starter or something like that, I guess. Um, you uh, can, if you have any kind of big cement project coming up where you're going to be doing cement, you can actually mix it as an amendment into cement and concrete and actually make a lighter form of very strong concrete with sawdust. Those are some ideas that I have. Um, but, I, 50 yards is a lot, so really think about it. Um, there's tons of stuff to do with sawdust, but not a lot of things that you need that much for. So if you were going to put in a lot of paths in your property, let's say you had a fairly large property, and you wanted to put in you know, a couple hundred yards or more of pathways, especially contour paths that kind of meandered through your path. I mean, God, what a great opportunity. You know, four inches deep of that stuff and on you go. I mean, that would be, and it would really help suppress weeds in that path. Very comfortable walking space. 
Uh, it would do a lot. It would act basically if you did it most. You can't do all the paths. I know people say, well, how do I do all my paths on contra? You can't do all your paths. Some point you got to cross the divide, right? But what you do is you follow the contours and diverge, and you think about the way you diverge. And if it's a big step down between two contours, you bring it down in terraces and step it down, and you can make a really beautiful uh, pathway through a property with that. But I'm again, I'm not a fan of using it as a direct mulch because it does kind of bind up and it's a little bit too fine for my taste. But uh, and you you're going to get more nitrogen reaction with sawdust because they're smaller pieces. So if you do use it as mulch, you're going to have to fertilize even more with an organic fertilizer than you would using wood chips. Because people that say that the wood chips take up nitrogen, they're right. It just isn't gone. It's not a sink. It's a trap. It holds it and releases it. So basically, you should feel much more comfortable with putting some money into an organic fertilizer when you're gardening with wood chips or wood mulch of any kind because it's you're not going to waste it. You're banking it. In fact, you're investing it because it will actually multiply Because as it bonds with the carbon in the wood, it'll actually turn itself into compost and be a longer-lasting fertilizer in that form um, and, and a much more controlled fertilizer and break down other nutrients that will multiply the effect. So normally when you over-fertilize, either you fertilize so much you get erratic growth and you don't get a lot of production or you get bitter lettuce or it just everything goes great but it kind of just leaches away. It runs off as a surplus nitrogen, and you lose it. But when you have lots of wood in your system, it binds, and it stays, and it becomes timerly. So you could do it, but I don't like it as direct mulch. Um, think hard before you have 50 yards dumped, though. Uh, have a plan. Those are the ideas I have. Other people might have some good plan uh, ideas, too. Uh, why not post your ideas for what to do at 50 yards, uh, not 50 square feet, 50 yards of sawdust in today's show notes. Uh, and again, today's episode is episode 1128, if you're listening sometime in the future, and I'm speaking to you from the past. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Josh Ronan from the forum. Question on what would be a good seed mix to throw in a pasture for livestock. I'm going to be moving onto eight acres in about a month. I've got around five acres of pasture, which I want to paddock my two dozen chickens on. We're also considering possibly getting a few goats and even a few potbelly pigs later on. I found a seed from Native American Seed Company. You can find them at www.seedsource.com, and it's their sustainable quell and dove mix. It's got like 21 different seeds in their mixture. I was actually thinking of combining it with buffalo grass seed so I can make the pasture really suitable for both the birds and any grazing animals. And I wondered what your thoughts were. Thanks for any advice. Well, first, the company's a great company, and I didn't realize how many mixes they have. And I actually kind of jumped over there to take a look at it. And uh, the quail and dove mix is made up of some pretty good stuff. Uh, bundle flour, partridge pea, basket flour, uh, common sunflower, and sunflowers reseed like mad. Uh, Texas Yellow Star Blue Bonnets. I don't know how well Blue Bonnets will do for you, and you didn't say where you're from, but based on your caller ID, I think you're out of Kansas. So I don't know how well Blue Bonnets will handle things that far north, um, but they're in there. Maximilian Sunflowers, Prickly Poppy, Cupgrass, Blue Stem, uh, Indian Grass, Switchgrass, Side Oats Gamma, which is a type of, gra gramma, a type of grass, Grama, uh, which is a type of grass, 
there's some other grama grasses, uh, dahlia. I mean, it looks like a pretty good mix. Um, so pitcher sage is in there and, uh, something called scrambled eggs. I'm about to learn something right here on the air, right in front of you. Common but rarely abundant, this wildflower is found throughout the state of Texas. It's a winter annual or biannual, so look for it in very early spring. Lacy leaf sprawling plant grows four to 14 inches tall and has numerous yellow flowers, one and a half to one inch long, a top branching stem. Upper petal has a curved spur. Be found most often along roadsides or in disturbed soils. For sandy, gravelly soils, it's interesting to note that Corydalis has been used in treating arthritis. These natives are friendly, so it's called Corydalis Curve something else. All right, with a C. Uh, but scrambled eggs is a common name. I don't know about that. One. It looks kind of cool though. Uh, but I'm seeing a lot of Texas natives in that mix. So. Um, my only concern is how well will they do in your climate. So you might want to go through those individual seeds in that mix and see if they're, how many of them are well adapted to Kansas. And if you find out that a lot of them aren't, you might want to put your own mix together. Um, one of the things that, uh, that I found that I thought was really cool and I was kind of glad that you, uh, put me onto this is they have a caliche for caliche soils, uh, mix. And I may have to pick some of that up and experiment with it myself, uh, cause I got a lot of that. And, you know, buffalo grass is, is, is a good idea in those types of soils. A little blue stem, prairie wild rye, sand love grass, a lot of stuff in there that's also in your mix. Um, so that tells you that you've got a mix that can handle some pretty harsh conditions, dry, gravelly soil. So if that's what you've got, you've got some tough stuff there that can take it on. Um, you, there's a couple things to consider here. Though. One, I think you said you had a couple dozen chickens or 18 chickens or dozen birds or something like that. Five acres in that few of birds, they're not going to get a lot of work done for you. They'll do a little bit, but um, you know that many birds have a hard time really working heavily on an acre. So it's not a bad thing. It's just that you're only going to get so much soil disturbance from your birds if you're paddocking them through. Uh, generally, what I like to do is paddock birds through and seed behind them uh, after they've disturbed the soil. But you also get, with dry climates like you and I are in, a narrow window that's really good to seed in the spring and the fall. The winter is too cold, especially where you're at compared to me, and in the summer it's too damn dry. You're kind of just throwing your seed away. So you can only do so much of that. So you might have to consider um, doing some type of a mechanical disturbance of the soil and doing a full-on seeding, so um, a light disking. You don't want to plow up everything, but some level of soil disturbance, or you're going to have to slowly phase this in over time because what I don't want you to do is end up you know, spending a ton of money on this and end up having your seed not germinate well enough and not do well enough for you. Um, so you're either going to have to sow uh, in a really right time of the year where there's enough moisture that even broadcasting with no disturbance will get there, phase it in using your animals paddock by paddock by paddock, and really focus on seeding during your moist times of the year. Because uh, looking at this, a pound of the seed mix you've described is $23 a pound, which is not bad. Um, but you think you said eight acres or five acres. I don't remember now, but it, let's say five acres at eight pounds an acre. Uh, we're looking at $160 an acre to do five acres. Then we're looking at, uh, $800 in seed. 
I don't mind spending $800 in seed if I have the money and it's worth doing, but I want to make sure that I don't end up with $800 of seed and I get a $50 worth of it to grow. So really check on those varieties for your region. And then my other suggestion for you is I have the presentation that I just put together called Six Core Permaculture Techniques. In there I talk about... Um, putting together seed mixes, and I give a bunch of things. A lot of them are annuals that are more for cover cropping, though, that I give in there. There's some perennials in there. And I would look at that, and I would apply the, the concept. that there's, there's about 14 questions. And I would write down all of those questions, and I would answer those questions for my purposes, my goal, and my region, and you'll come up with a mix. And if one of the pre-established mixes is very close to that, fine. If not... Put your own mixes together. But I'm going to check out that Kalich mix because, boy, I'll tell you what, that might be really a good idea uh, to mix in with some legumes uh, when Jeff comes here in August because, boy, do we have the Kalich here. So thanks for the resource, and that's that's how I would handle the situation. And, again, I would really think about the fact that with that number of animals on that much land, you're only going to get so much work done by them as far as soil disturbance, and you might have to think a little bit harder about how you do this. But if you've got, if it's not bare soil, right, if it's if it's got some stuff on it, if it's prairie, and you, you broadcast into prairie in your early spring next year or as you go into fall this year, uh, and that seed can sit out in that field, Over the winter, too, the stuff that needs to will. I mean, that's how natives work. They drop their seed in fall, and they come up in spring for you. Um, you should be fine. But if you're sitting on bare soil, uh, and you throw that seed on the ground without disturbing that soil, you're going to have a lot harder time getting it to establish itself. Uh, let's take another call. Hello, Jack. The question. Thoughts on paying off a debt as quickly as possible, or get my property and pay it off as quickly as possible, then switch back to the debt. The details. I and thousands of other students had a very large sum of money taken from us by a school that filed bankruptcy on us with no warning. After all the litigation was said and done, we still owe $140,000. Even though it was a personal signature loan, it's protected underneath the educational purposes umbrella. It's not going away. We filed bankruptcy three years ago just so that we could afford to pay the minimums on this loan. I've since started working in the Bakken oil patch and have more than doubled my take-home pay. After all expenses each month, I have roughly $3,500 left over to deal with this situation. Being unmarried to being eaten alive by taxes and have nothing substantial to use for deductions. A few things motivate this question. It seems like a good idea, good time to buy property. I can afford to buy property. If needs be, I can use my VA loan and I want a place to go before the current captain of the ship runs us into an iceberg full steam ahead. As always, your opinions are welcomed and always help shed light on the situation. Thank you very much. Member Brigade and forum member Ford. That's not easy. Um, if you were just going to say to me, I have some student loan debt and I'll have to buy a house and you were sitting on 20 or 30 grand worth of student loan debt, I'd just say pay it off. Just pay the student loan debt off, make minimum payments on your house until the student loan debt's coming. You got a big pile of debt there. And I don't really understand the problem. You said that they went bankrupt. Did, I, I, did, 
I, I'm not sure whether that means you never got the education that you paid for because you said the litigation's done, so it seems like it doesn't matter. But I mean, if you didn't, if you didn't get the, the education you paid for, uh, you know, I'd suggest defaulting on the damn thing. Except you can't because of the type of debt that it is. And this is this is why I hate student loan debt, folks. Even when you get screwed, there's no. There's no plan B. I mean, this is like having freaking cancer that you can eventually buy your way out of. It will chase you to the grave. Uh, they, if you hold on to student debt long enough, they'll garnish your social security checks to make sure you pay it back. And the freaking lender gets paid twice, by the way. They get paid by the government, and then they get paid again when you're forced to pay. So this is a, a total screw job. Uh, and, and the way this is done needs to be completely eliminated and, and replaced with something that makes more sense. And by the way, if we didn't have all these easy student loans and things like this, the educations wouldn't cost what they do. Because it's ridiculous what some people come out owing for a degree in freaking communications, uh, you know, with a minor in basket weaving or something stupid like that. Um, but this is, I, I still got to put it to you this way. I would pay the debt off faster than the house debt. I would not buy a house, though. Uh, you got to live somewhere. It is a great time to buy a house. And if you can afford a house, you can buy a house, I would buy a house. And I would probably get a standard fixed-rate 30-year mortgage. And I would be very comfortable with that mortgage right now. Um, you've got interest rates in the 3 percentile range. Your money loses value faster than that. I almost wouldn't advise a person to buy a house for cash right now anyway when when the, the interest rate is that low on the house. Now, paying it off a little bit early and, and not having that expense in the future, fine. But with inflation the way that it's going to be in the future and the way that housing markets are you know, depressed right now and it's still a good time to buy, and with the market in recovery and housing prices rising, if you can find what you're looking for and you can afford it, And you know that you can put away enough money that if you had to go a couple months at least while you found another job, if you lost your job, um, that you would be able to, uh, to be able to keep the house, go ahead and buy a house. But then if you have extra money, you got two big payments, you got a house payment, a student loan payment, put the extra money on the student loans. Here's why. The house has value. The house should theoretically go up in value, but even if it declines in value, it's going to decline very little, especially with the market where it is now. This is a very safe time to lock into a home. And the house is an asset. And, and your, your debt on your house, while it's technically a liability, is leveraged against an asset. The debt that you have for this loan, that you, there's no way to escape this loan. It just can't be done. It, it's way too big. There's There's... And it's, and it's way too deep with its hooks into you, has no asset attached to it. There's nothing you can ever sell against the loan. So if you owe $150,000 on a house, even if the market takes a dump and the house is now worth $140,000, you can still sell the house and you only got to come up with ten. There's a leverage at, a leveraged asset at work there. And in theory, you know, and if you buy smart and buy right, you should be able to sell that house for more than the debt on it. Uh, so you should be able to divest yourself of that debt in all but the worst situations, at which time you may want to do everything you can to hold on to the house. So because it, it may be very, the, the re biggest reason you would have for not being able to sell your house is that it's very hard to buy a house, at which time you'd be happy that you were holding one, assuming you could service the debt on it. And if we talk about the end of the world as we know it, nobody can pay their mortgage. The bank can't repossess everybody at the same time. It's impossible. So I would buy the house. 
I would focus, though, on divesting myself of the student loan debt accelerated versus doing the house accelerated because you're probably paying more interest there. Uh, it's a, a, a debt you can never get rid of and with no asset leverage against it. So that's what I would do personally. But um, you say the litigation has been all sorted out. If you didn't, like if, if the institution itself went bankrupt and you never completed your education, um, I might still contact another lawyer and see if there's anything that can be done there. If you did receive the education, then their bankruptcies are relevant. So I, I'm not sure how that works out. I, I'm really not. And uh, just let this be a lesson to folks. Don't do this crap. I almost, almost bet that some of the loans taken out were not used for the education directly, but things like housing and transportation and meals during the education. That's really getting dumb with your money. I don't want to pick on the guy that called in, but this is for the people that haven't done it to yourselves yet. Don't take student loans to pay for your apartment. Don't be an idiot. Don't be looking at $150,000 in debt when you come out of college with a job that's going to pay $50,000 a year to start. That $150,000 can buy you a pretty decent house in a lot of the country. Uh, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. I need gardening help with the bane of my existence, grubs. I'm in Indiana right now. I just started putting in my garden, and I already noticed about five or six of those nasty little creatures in my soil when I was doing planting, and I would really like some kind of help with some kind of natural substance that I could use to kill the things. Uh, so any advice you can give me to help me win the battle against grubs in my garden, I would certainly appreciate it. God bless you. Thanks for all your do. Bye. Well, there's two things that people refer to as grubs in the garden, and one's generally not a big problem. The one is great big, white, plump-looking grub. And I have them all over here. They're in my compost pile. They're in my soil. When I dig the gardens, I find them. When I dig the compost, I find them. And I put them in a little uh, flower pot, and then I take them over to the chickens, and the chickens love them. And I don't do that because I think they're that big of a problem because they're there. And my garden looks beautiful this year already. And, I mean, I got a late start and had to move in and started with nothing. And I just don't have any problems with them. Um, mostly what I've seen those things eat are the roots of grass, which you've got grass into your garden. You'd probably be kind of happy that they did that. I've, I've seen them wipe out lawns. They wiped out my lawn in Pennsylvania. Um, in one year that they were really, really bad. But I have never had them be much of a problem in the garden. So I wouldn't really worry about them that much unless you're actually having problems. Just because you see something in your garden doesn't mean it's a problem for your garden. And even if you're having a problem, it doesn't mean that they're the ones that are doing it. Because there's another one. You'll dig up sometimes. These are harder to see and harder to find, but there's usually more of them there. And they look more like a little bitty caterpillar. They're usually kind of a grayish-brown color, and they roll up in a, a, a ball just like a grub does when it's exposed, and it hides. And that little bugger is called a cutworm. And those are a problem in your garden because they don't mainly feed on roots. They feed on plants, and they call them cutworms. And if you've ever planted a bunch of beans or something like that, and they've just come up, and you're all happy, and you come out the next day, and now you're sad because all your beans look like somebody just went through with snips and just snipped them over, that's who did it. It's not the grub. It's the cutworm. And if you got them... Um, I mean, the best thing you can do is right before you plant your garden, put your chickens through it and, and let them just go to town on it. 
you know, pull back the mulch for them, expose the dirt, and let them just, they'll dig in there, they'll hammer it, and they'll find a lot of those uh, little buggers. And if you plant a little bit later in your season for your starting your plants, that'll mitigate them as well. And then the easy solution is go get like a big-ass package of small cups. And I, I prefer, if you can find them, the little cups that are like a hard plastic kind of, you know, something that's not paper, and cut the bottoms off of them. It'll take you a long time the first time you do it, but they'll store easily in the last many seasons for you. And when you have tender plants coming up, put one of those around the plant until it's been up and out of the ground for five to ten days when it's still small enough that you can take the cup back off, but it's got kind of a woody stem. And that'll save 99% of them with no chemicals and no killing and no nothing because it's, it creates a barrier because they don't come up from underneath generally. You know, they might get lucky and hit that little circle, but generally they, they come out at night and they start crawling around and looking for things and they eat whatever's at their ground level, which is why they cut the, the, the stem off almost perfectly to the ground. And if you've had this problem and you look, it'll look just like somebody came out with a little razor knife and just cut your freaking plants out and you're like, what the hell? And so a lot of times people would mulch and they see a lot of little roly-poly pill bugs in there and they think they did it. It's the freaking cutworm. But I've not had big problems with those big, plump, white grubs in the garden. Only in lawns have they really been a big problem for me. So I wouldn't consider them the bane of your existence unless they're doing damage. And unless you're sure it's them that are doing the damage, more or less, I think you've got to treat for your chickens. If you don't have chickens, my old, and I, I don't like them. It's not like I'm like, these are a wonderful thing or anything. And whenever I'm digging and I do find them, when I didn't have chickens, what I do it sounds cruel, but it's effective, is just lay the shovel flat, and I just pick them up, and I chunk them against the shovel, one good splat, and, and then I just mix them in with the dirt, and now they're part of the compost uh, situation. So I, I do eliminate them when I see them, but they don't over-concern me, and I've never had any real problems that I can attribute to them. Again, those little kind of grayish-looking ones, And uh, I'll see if I can find a picture of what they look like. Post that for you in the show notes. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Thank you so much for your service to our country, both when you were in the Army and what you're doing now. Um, I know you don't uh, like to be considered a leader, but, man, we're hungry for leadership in this area. What I'm calling about today is I just heard another thing on the radio about some crazy stuff that's going on about um, um court-martialing people that are that are proselytizing religion in the military. Um, they're just trying to trying to wipe out any kind of spirituality in the military. Um, plus, so many other things that are going on now, and, and I'm just wondering: is it realistic to think that in the in the walking to freedom movement that the governors of the states that we all want to walk to could form some organized state militias? Of, of citizens that volunteer their time to, uh, you know, just similar to the, uh, the National Guard. And I would love to be a part of that. Um, go, you know, one weekend a month, do some training, um, to be part of a state militia. And, you know, I would even, you know, I wouldn't mind, you know, buying all my own uniform and weapons and, and you know, paying for it myself so that the state didn't have to pay for it. And I bet you there's a bunch of people that would be part of that as well. Um, just like to hear your thoughts on if that's a realistic idea. 
Thank you again, Jack. Let's start out with the issue with uh, court-martialing soldiers for proselytizing their faith in the military. Let me tell you what ain't happening. A soldier is not going out on their own time, in their own way, in their own place, not in uniform and not representing the military and not using the credential of the military in connection with it and talking to people about Jesus and getting court-martialed. That ain't happening. That ain't what they're doing. And all you people think they are need to... Just freaking get your head around a reality. That is not what is going on here. And I saw articles that this could eliminate chaplains from the military. No, it's not going this is not a war on Jesus. It's not. And, and there's times when you, you know, your faith's being attacked and you gotta stand up for it and there's times where it's not. Let me tell you what's going on here. Um, there's been instances where soldiers in Iraq in uniform are running around in a Muslim country throwing a Bible at people. That is not your job when you're in the military in another country, in a, specifically a Muslim country, is an occupying force. That is not your job. It's not what you're supposed to be doing. And it can inflame issues and put other soldiers at risk. Let me explain something else to you. Let's say you have a job and you work in a cubicle. And you work at an office. And you come in and you have your, your religious thing on your desk or whatever. In general, most companies will leave you alone. They don't care. If you happen to be talking to a coworker who's interested in what you have to say and you're talking about what went on church that week, they don't really care that you're doing that. But if you start going around to other cubicles and start telling people about Jesus and how they should come to your church, generally speaking, you can get your ass fired for that because that's not what you're being paid to do. It's not your job. Your job is to sit in your cubicle and do whatever the people that sign your paycheck have asked you to do to do. And if you're doing it in a way that is actually upsetting or offending or ticking off your fellow coworkers, not because they overheard something where they're being ultra-sensitive, but where they've said, listen, man, this isn't my thing. I'm trying to get my job done here. I don't want to talk to you about this. Go back to work. Okay? That's the problem in the military. And let me tell you what makes it a bigger problem And this whole my rights thing applies even less. The bigger problem in the military is that soldiers generally, especially lower enlisted, live together, train together in the barracks. You don't go home and go your separate ways at the end of the day. You end up with common areas in barracks. You end up with two to four soldiers or more living in a single room together. Okay? They work together every single day. Their after hours are spent together. When somebody decides that, hey, the barracks need to be cleaned and you're not going out tonight, you're cleaning the barracks, they're together for that. You get it? Okay? They're also subject to requirements that civilians are not, like obeying freaking orders. All right? So now in that environment, and I had people like this I served with, and they basically had to be explained to shut up, that would go around trying to save people from themselves. That's not what you're being paid to do as a soldier. Now, if somebody's interested in having that conversation with you, that's no problem. But when you've told somebody, look, man, we're done with this conversation, and they keep, and you're in that environment, and we might have to go into harm's way together, and you're, and I don't care if it's, I don't care if it's religion, I don't care if it's politics, I don't care what it is. There's a point at which when I've told you, look, dude, I've had enough, you need to shut your cake hole. Now, in the military when this happens, what they don't just take this person and throw them in front of a court-martial. No, this is what happens. An NCO that's responsible for that person will generally pull them aside and give them verbal counseling. If the verbal counseling is not getting through the thick skull, they'll usually write them a counseling statement, a written form of counseling. It's not that much different than how a workplace might be handled by a supervisor. 
And they might say, now I'm putting this on your record. And I'm, I'm, I've, I've gone down on record now telling you that what you're doing is disruptive to units cohesion. And if you want to do this on your own time, and if you want to talk to about people who are interested in hearing about it, that's fine. But when you're told to leave somebody alone, shut your hole. And if that doesn't work, they'll probably find themselves standing in front of a commander of the unit who will put them through an Article 15 procedure, which is like Article uh, Article 15 is like kind of like court martial light. You recover from it really easy. You can it doesn't get in the way of your promotions, though you can get demoted with it. Um, but basically, it's another formal proceeding where they'll say, you know what, for the next two weeks you're painting the barracks, your 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 pass is revoked, you're not going anywhere, and I'm giving you an order to shut your hole. At this point, you've now been given two orders, first by a non-com that you directly report to, and now by a commissioned officer. If you continue with this behavior, you're in violation of orders. It doesn't matter that what you're doing is telling people about Jesus or Buddha or Allah or whatever. What matters is you've been giving an order in the capacity of being a soldier or an airman or a marine to refrain from doing something that the military has full right to tell you to do. That order could be clean your weapon. That order could be no more of this behavior. That order could be, I don't know, paint paint the walls of the barracks. That order could be charge the hill. That order could be anything. This is the military. It's not the Boy Scouts. It's not freaking Disneyland. It you When you stick your hand up and you swear to obey the orders of the officers and non-commissioned officers appointed over you, it really means something. And what you would be court-martialed for is disobeying an order. So there you go. Now, people say, well, I'm not supposed to just... What about just following orders in the Nazis? This is not the Nazis. This is not just following orders. Orders are to be followed unless they're immoral or illegal. Now, if you were given an order, Private Smith, thou shalt not, on thy own time acting as a civilian, outside of the scope of military, whatever, go to a church and pray. That would be an immoral order, and I would stand with you in opposition to it. But being told your squad mates are sick of you trying to convince them that you're right about your particular view of God, and you need to cease and desist at once, or, no, it's not okay for you to run around handing Bibles out, in uniform, on duty, in a Muslim country, in a combat zone. And you disobey that and you get your ass court-martialed? Tough. You should. It's the military. It's not freaking Disneyland. And if you don't get that, don't join. And that's not about your faith. That's not about anti-Christian. That's about that's how the freaking military works. And by the way, while we're on the subject, bring the bayonet training back. All right. Now. State militias, like you're describing. Come to Texas, we have one. It's called the Texas State Guard. It's exactly what you're describing. The governor is in command. It's all volunteer forces. People pay for everything. The way that it operates is almost exactly like the National Guard, except it's a state entity. You don't get deployed outside of the state. They are armed. They do have the same type of command structure. Two weeks a month, one weekend a year, and deployment into disaster areas as needed. It's here. That said, to me, that's still not... Would I really consider a militia? You want a militia? Create one. Form one. Run it well. Organize it well. And be a civilian militia. And if the governor wants your help or the sheriff wants your help, let them ask for it. And let the members of that militia decide whether or not their help is warranted when requested. Because that's what makes a civilian militia really powerful. 
If we actually restored the militias in this country, and if a state like Texas had a standing civilian militia, combined standing militia of 100,000 men, that might make the governor feel pretty good. If they had pledged to their, their oath of loyalty to the Constitution of the state of Texas, that, that might make the governor feel like he has a pretty big asset at his disposal. But if he also knows that those men will only answer the call if they feel the call is just, might keep him on his toes at the same time makes him feel good. And that's the purpose of the militia, folks. You can't water it down. You can't change it. That's the historical role. The historical role is, yes, they are to be used by the government when necessary, but they are to be used constitutionally. And if the men of that militia don't feel the government is right in asking for their assistance, guess what? Gets declined. You can federalize it all you want, folks, but if no one shows up, no one shows up. And there's never been a successful case of prosecuting somebody for being AWOL as a militia member. It just doesn't happen. Now, if the, if the militia gets federalized and you go along with it and you get made part of the regular troops, which is like something that happened in um, the, the, the Civil War, and once you've accepted that, your obligation changes. But until you do, you're just a citizen soldier. You're just a militiaman. You're just a citizen exercising their their rights to assemble, to organize, and to be armed. That's it. Now, you start marching around, and you put your militia together, and like Adam wants to, and march across uh, the bridge to Washington, D.C., now you've committed a felony. It's not about being a militia. It's about you violated the law. Being a militia member doesn't give you permission to violate the law. And being a militia member in itself is not illegal. The two go side by side, not hand in hand. Anyway, that's my thoughts on that. But if you want a state-run version of a militia, I know California has something that I don't trust. I think Oregon has something that I'm not sure if I trust or not. And the state of Texas has something that I trust more, but still has layers of bureaucracy and state direct control. I believe that a militia is a citizens' movement made up of citizens at the direction of citizens And the leaders in that militia are to be voted for by the men and women whom they command. Um, and, you know, hopefully people say, well, does that mean that the militia could go into battle? Pray to God it never happens. The day that our militias in this country have to go to battle is one of the darkest days in, in the history of the world, let alone the republic, if that ever happens again. This is a different world, a different time, and a different place. But to think that there could never be a time is foolish. And we should be prepared if it ever comes to it. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Dan in Utah. Rocket mass heaters are against our building codes here. But if I built uh, one in a well-insulated shed behind my house and used a vent to pull the hot air in with the fan in my furnace, do you think that it would technically be outside the scope of building codes since it's technically not in my house? Or is this a rather extreme measure to try and bend code? I'll... I'd go ask the city, but I'm pretty sure that if I did find a way of doing it to code, they would find a way to alter the laws and make it illegal again. Thanks, Jack. Love the show. Keep it up. Um, I wouldn't even bother. I, I think you're just... I mean, if you want to build one to build one, that's fine. And if you want to build one out in a, in a shed or something that's not subject to the same codes, that's fine. And I wouldn't ask. If, it's, if, it's, if you can do it, if you're allowed to do it without a permit, I would just do it. Um, But if you made any kind of attachment to the home, I'd make sure that it's easily removable uh, so that when you went to sell the house, if it became an issue, you just remove it. 
Um, but I probably wouldn't do that. It's a lot of money, expense, and effort uh, to do something that's not optimal anyway. I would suggest if you want to heat your house with wood and you want an external way to do it, get a, get a good quality, highly efficient wood furnace. Um, and, and use that for heating. That's, that's what I would do. That's going to be a short and easy one there. That's my opinion. And again, if you want to build one there, that's fine. But anything you do to pump heat into the house, make sure that it doesn't permanently alter the structure in any way, shape, or form. And no, I wouldn't ask for that. I would just do it if it's, if you're not going to run into problems just for having it in the, the barn or the shed. Uh, but for the heating, wood furnace. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, Demon here from northern Minnesota. I was wondering what kind of natural herbs or foods I can consume to keep up my immune system. I've been listening to your older podcast at work, running through about the 11, 12 of them per day, and on podcast number 188 or 189, you mentioned looking into some natural immune boosters. Uh, working a lot of hours, and I never take a sick day, so anything I can take or eat to prevent from getting sick is definitely worth it. Uh, thanks for the show. Uh, yeah. Well, it's a good question, and there's a lot of really great herbs out there to uh, to choose from when it comes to uh, to boosting the immune system. And uh, I'll give you a few of them here. Echinacea is one that people think of right away. Uh, Paulo de, de Arco is uh, from the rainforest of Brazil, and it nourishes the body's defense systems and helps protect against pathogenic organisms. It's it's really a great herb. Uh, Suma is another uh, Amazonian herb that's a, a really good idea. Um, those are some ones that are a little bit harder to get your hands on, I guess, or you usually have to buy them because they're from tropical regions. Uh, if you ask most herbalists if they only had one thing they could use, period, uh, as a medicine, what would it be? Most would tell you garlic. Uh, which immediately leads you to onions as well because they're part of the alum family. Um, but garlic is a huge one. Garlic and ginger are two of your best immune-boosting uh, herbs. Olive leaf extract is a good one. Horseradish is a, is a great immune booster. These are things that can be put right into the diet, not necessarily taken as herbs uh, as well, which is great. Most capsaicin, so uh, hot peppers, anything from jalapeno at the bottom end to habanero at the top end that you can actually uh, uh, eat is, you know, if you can tolerate the heat is a good idea. Apple cider vinegar is a great immune booster. Uh, grapefruit seed extract is another thing that you can uh, look at when we, we kind of move over to just Straight up herbs, again, garlic and ginger, I think, and, and echinacea are all really great ones. Uh, I would say calendula uh, is another one. Uh, cat's claw is something you can grow and, and you can, you know, kind of make your own preps, uh, from. Hyssop is, is a great one. Sage. And sage is a great cooking herb. Uh, so that's something that can be put into your diet. And sage should be in every, Every garden, actually, parsley and oregano both have really a lot of tonifying effect as well. So parsley, oregano, and sage, especially fresh grown and fresh used and, and thrown into your cooking, uh, is a great one. St. John's wort uh, is very well known as an, a mood booster, but it's actually a pretty good immune booster as well. Turmeric uh, is a great anti-inflammatory, but also has some immune boosting uh, properties, and uh, those are all, you know, just. I mean, honestly, all fresh herbs have some level of this, but those are some of the better ones. And then there's a little secret that I learned about from Jeff Lawton, and it's called Herb, uh, Herb Robert or Germanium, Germanium Robertium, okay, which is a, a Robert uh, Geranium. 
And uh, the magic of that is not so much what it does, but it, it allows the body to better absorb the substances in other herbs. It's like it's like a catalyst, uh, and it's a very easy thing to grow, and it has a pretty little flower on it too. So um, th those would be some of the things that I would really consider if I were you, if you're worried about boosting your immune system. Uh, and if you just put immune-boosting herbs into Google, you'll find all kinds of suggestions, some of them maybe not the best, but uh, garlic, ginger, uh, two of your best uh, options. And another thing to consider adding into your diet is honey. Uh, real honey, raw honey, uh, is a great way to help boost the immune system. And a lot of these herbs uh, mixed with honey make pretty good tea. Uh, I'll tell you that one tea you can try that's uh, surprisingly good, uh, and you don't really think about these things going together, but it's a couple leaves of fresh uh, sage, uh, a couple good cuttings from a peppermint, a few slices of ginger, and, and soak that in hot water, And then add, uh, you know, a teaspoon of local honey to that. That's pretty freaking outstanding stuff. And if you can, uh, if you grow bee balm, a little bit of bee balm leaf in there, and even the bee balm flower, uh, would be another thing that you could add. Uh, I kind of dig putting together little teas like that out of native plants, herbs, and things like that. And, uh, a lot of flowers add good aroma and flavor, uh, rose petals. I mean, rose petals are a great flavor additive for a tea. And chopping up a couple pieces of, uh, what am I, what's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, rose hips into that tea. Huge antioxidant boost, uh, from those. And a lot of great flavor. Uh, another thing you can consider making a tea out of that's not something people would normally think of, but goji berry or wolfberry. I've just planted two of them yesterday. It'll be a long time before I'm getting berries off of them, but you can buy them, uh, dried up like little raisins. A handful of those in hot water and drink that and then eat the berries at the end. Uh, really, really a great immune booster. A lot of, uh, you know, what I consider scam companies, uh, do goji berry juice and goji berry extract as, uh, as their way of creating their little pyramid games for like, you know, network marketing crap. Um, and overpriced the hell out of the stuff, but you can just buy goji berry and, uh, you, it's not expensive and it's a, it really is a great immune booster. It's just packaging it into a bottle and charging $60 a month on auto ship for it that I object to, not the product in of itself. Anyway, those are some ideas for you and a good place to get started. And once you try all that, if you're not feeling better, come back to me and we'll come up with something to add to the list. <laughs> Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Mark from New Jersey. I'm uh, calling about mushroom soil. I've noticed a lot of suppliers around here are starting to supply a thing called mushroom soil. I haven't seen it in the past. Just wonder what your thoughts are on it, and maybe you could explain what it is. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Love the show. Uh, mushroom soil is mushroom compound posters, same things. Generally, it works like this. A mushroom producer will get a whole bunch of compostables and compost it. And then they'll use that and they'll grow their mushrooms in that compost. And after that's done, it's kind of been used up for mushroom purposes, but has plenty of nutrient left over, uh, that gardeners can use. So it's, it's a good soil amendment. It's not something I would use in large, huge quantities. A, a, bag or two per raised bed uh, to help boost things and make the soil have a little more tilth and things like that. And what I can say for it is you're probably a lot less likely to end up with residual herbicide because it, even if you're using soybean meal and some things like that that are used sometimes to, uh, to make the mushroom compost, by growing the mushrooms in it, a lot of what might have been in there may have been remediated and fed to somebody who buys those white button mushrooms. 
why I don't buy the white button mushrooms because I know how they grow them. I grow my own mushrooms or I buy uh, medicinal mushrooms like shiitakes and reishi and things like that and, and, and buy them dehydrated is probably the best way to do that. Um, but those little white button mushrooms are probably, you know, laced with herbicide, honestly, based on the ag waste that's used to produce them. But that means it's it's been largely remediated and what you've got left over is is pretty good stuff. Okay, so then the other side of that. The one concern with mushroom soil, mushroom compost, is it's generally kind of high in some naturally occurring salts that do mediate over time. But if you have too much of it around young seedlings or over top of plants that you're planting from seed, it can have some detrimental effects on their ability to germinate or their ability to establish well for you. And they can look a little lethargic and not make it, be taken out a little bit easier by pests. And now you think you've got an herbicide issue, which really what you've got is a sodium issue because you've used too much of it. So it's a use in moderation amendment. Or if you have hardy perennials that are well established, you can heavily mulch with it around those and that sodium may actually work to your benefit with a little bit of weed suppression and that effect will diminish with time. So if you've done this heavily, like last year, just don't do it again and by this year, uh, do a little bit of mixing up of things and, and, and don't add more of it and you should be fine. And if you want to use it, use it in moderation, and you should be fine. And again, I'd say a, a sack or two to uh, four foot by eight foot raised bed, I'd say one sack of it, uh, and go with some other soil amendments as well. And uh, don't overdo it in areas where you're planting seed, and you'll be fine with it. Good stuff. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Jack from Ardmore, Oklahoma. And I have a question about these door-to-door searches uh, that they were doing in Massachusetts while looking for this terror suspect. Um, is that legal? Uh, it looks to me like it would be a violation of the Fourth Amendment, but, you know, I mean, I don't know. Is there something in the Patriot Act that, that lets them do that, and an order by the governor? I don't know. I mean, to me, I can understand why they'd do it, but, man, it looks like a slippery slope. I mean, once we go down that, that, uh, that area of allowing the government to go through your home, I don't know, Jack. Maybe I'm being paranoid. I don't know. Um, your thoughts on the subject would be really cool. Thanks a lot. Bye. Well, we're in a, a situation with current spoiled generations that don't understand certain things about um, the nation itself and the authority of government and think that their rights supersede everything, and, and they really don't. But it's also, like you say, it is a slippery slope at the same time, and people have had this divergence from the reality there are times when martial law does exist, and it's necessary. And I don't know whether that was the case this time around or not, um, whether it was really necessary to do so. But basically, the area was under a state of martial law. So when people were told being being told stay the hell home, and I don't know me, I'm sorry, but that's that's how it was done. It wasn't like they just did it. They they declared a state of martial law to do that, and. In a state of martial law, under national emergency or severe, serious local state emergencies, a uh, state of martial law can be declared by the President of the United States, by the Governor of the state. And in that in- instance, many constitutional rights are suspended. And that is legal in our republic. It's also why the people with the authority to do so must be inherently trustworthy, and most of them are not. So we have a problem here. We have a system that needs to exist. There needs to be a time when the government can say, you know what, we're going through houses. I mean, there, there is a time for that. 
You know, we can't get a hundred search warrants in five minutes. But on the other hand, they shouldn't be able to just come in your house whenever they want because we do have a Fourth Amendment. And it does matter. But in that instance, that's how it was done legally. State of emergency. And again, that means that the people in control have to be inherently trustworthy to only use that power when absolutely necessary and immediately relinquish it. And the danger is that generally governments don't relinquish power once they have it. In this case, they did. There's nobody just continuously going through houses when they got the guy, they got the guy. And I'll tell you else what I, what I, what I did not hear. I did not hear at any point along the way that they found somebody growing marijuana in a closet and arrested them and uh, did so when when they, they found it because of that or found something illegal. I, I haven't heard about a single person uh, that was detained, arrested, or even fined for a violation of law uh, while this was being done. And I bet you somebody somebody could have been, uh, that somebody along the way somewhere saw something that was technically illegal when you go through that many homes. And that's exactly what should happen. Nothing. I, I don't care if you, unless somebody's life is in danger, you know, you're looking for this terrorist, but you, you, you break into a house because you're searching every house and then somebody's in there holding somebody hostage. You know, if you see something that's technically illegal, as long as it's not immediately life threatening, you didn't see it because it's not the purpose of why you were in violation of the person's constitutional rights in the first place. And it's stuff like the page, it's not this, it's stuff like the Patriot Act where things are done for terrorism and all of a sudden they're being used for other means, um, and things that would generally be considered prohibited by our Constitution, exceptions are made for, where the slippery slope really rears its head. Again, I don't know that this was necessary, but it's not illegal. It's not illegal for a governor in a state of emergency or the president in a state of national emergency to declare martial law and suspend specific constitutional rights that are deemed necessary due to the emergency. You know the big one we have to worry about, though, when they say the, your constitutional right to keep and bear arms is suspended. And thanks to the work done by the NRA in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, that's a big hurdle for them to get over now. That's exactly what happened there. And that's a right that should never be taken away. Especially in a time of emergency. In a time of national emergency where you need to suspend the Constitution government, your people need to be armed then more than at any other time. So that's kind of how I feel on that one. I, I don't, I, I have to tell you guys, I haven't spent a lot of time researching this Boston bomber thing. Um, right after that happened, we had the explosion down in West Texas. 18 people lost their lives and um, half a town was severely damaged, and, and, and people down there, their lives had been extremely disrupted. And I think it was on the news for a day nationally. And the Boston bomber was on our uh, bombings, were, was on our TV 24-7 for two and a half, three weeks, and they're still on and on about it. And I don't mean any disrespect, but a hell of a lot less people were killed and injured there than there were at the plant in West Texas. But this is terrorism, so it's a sexy news topic. And the other one's just an accident, so nobody really cares. We can't use it to get a law passed or anything. And in some instances, I grow weary of the news, and I don't take everything that happens, even serious things, and, and spend a huge amount of time on them. Um, I don't know all the facts about the case. I know that, once again, I feel like something's not right. Um, I don't feel the government did it, but I feel that the government had a hand on it in some way, shape, or form, and 
maybe could have prevented it and didn't. Um, but it, it, I don't need another conspiracy theory occupying my life. I don't need another reason to not trust my government. Um, and I don't really know whether or not it was necessary to implement martial law, but it was done. And I have to say, under our system of government, it is constitutional, specifically when done the way that it was done here. Again, not saying it was necessary, but it was done, the objective was obtained, and it was rescinded. And when martial law is put in place, that's exactly how it's supposed to be. In the moment that the, the objective that was deemed necessary is obtained, then the removal of the lockdown or the whatever they're doing happens. So I'm not happy about it, and the answer is I really don't know if it should have been done, but we can't say that it's a violation of the Constitution because the apparatus for suspension of certain constitutional rights does exist. Well, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. First-time caller from Central California and a new MSB member. I just wanted to find out your thoughts on soap berries or soap nuts. Um, I love the thought of being able to grow my own soap, so I purchased some of the nuts on the Internet and tried them. Um, they work just as well as, you know, my chemical-filled generic laundry soap that I've used for years. So um, I was able to find a nursery on the West Coast that sells the trees, and I ordered two of them, and I now have two soapberry trees in my front yard. They're only about two and a half feet tall, but um, I'm really looking forward to growing my own soap eventually. And I've also heard that you can make your own shampoo and hand soap out of the berries. And as soon as my gardening season slows down, I plan on experimenting with that. Anyway, thanks for all you do, Jack. I'm so grateful that I found the Survival Podcast. Well, they're certainly a cool little thing that nature's produced, and they do seem to work pretty well for people. Um, you can grow them into Zone 7. They get to be a very large tree. I actually saw them recently on the show Shark Tank. And I can't find any information online about this, but my understanding from the people there that there is, uh, if you have a large amount of them in a confined space, the, uh, there can actually be some problems with toxicity with breathing in, in that confined space. But, uh, I, I don't think that, you know, using them as, as most people use them, that would even be a concern. But if you're going to have a ton of them in one place, that might be something to look into. Um, I'm not sure if that's even factual because I don't take Shark Tank to be uh, the end-all, be-all of giving me factual information. But that's one of the things that I got from the people there. It's a fairly small industry, uh, but you can find them in a lot of places. So if you can't grow them, you can buy them. And my understanding is they last a very, very long time. I don't have any direct experience with them. If anybody has and really loves them or really hates them, please comment in the show notes. Uh, maybe I need to pick some up. Uh, but... Uh, I'm really sold on, you know, the good old-fashioned lye soap, and I just had a listener trade me some for MSB, and they sent me a box. Uh, they, they, <laughs> I'm pretty hooked up for soap for a long time now. Uh, but maybe I'll check into them, and I'd love the audience's thoughts on soap berries or soap nuts. Uh, one big thing to consider, though, if you want to grow them, a soap nut tree is kind of a, an oddity, it, it, very much an oddity in, in the natural world. Generally, trees are one of two things. They're either uh, self-fertile or they have a male and female tree. So ginkgo is an example. If you have a male ginkgo, you don't get any nuts on the male ginkgo ever. If you have a female ginkgo without a male ginkgo, you don't get any nuts. But if you have a male and a female ginkgo tree, you get cross-pollination. And the same kiwis are another a vine in this instance. You have a male vine and a female vine, and the male vine is needed to pollinate the female vine. 
Then you have self-fertile, where you have basically trees. The, the tree is both male and female. And sometimes it's t truly fertile and can fertilize itself. Or sometimes you need another variety that needs to, to be there so that you get a cross-pollination. Apples, it, it, for instance, generally are not self-fertile. They need another variety to cross-pollinate with them. Um, so you have to have two trees. Um, this thing, <laughs> it's like it doesn't know what it is. You could get one that's male. <laughs> you could get one that's female. You could get one that's self-fertile, and you don't really know what you're going to get. So if you're going to grow this thing, you might want to get at least two or three of them. Or I don't know if nurseries are able to know what they've got in advance. I know with ginkgo, you can they'll sell you a male tree or a female tree or both. Um, and with kiwis, they'll sell you a male vine, a female vine, or both. Um, but I don't know how that works out with uh, with soap berries or soap nuts because I've, I've never grown them. But that is one thing to kind of be on the lookout for if you're going to play around and experiment with growing them. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Tommy from uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. Just a really quick question about um, everyday carry pocket knives and when, when your opinion on them. As, uh, more specifically, a karambit. I think that's how you pronounce it. I hope I didn't butcher that, but a karambit. Um, basically... If you carry a firearm in addition to a knife or either or whatever, uh, are those considered equal force? So if you did have to deploy something to to uh, uh, protect, you know, a loved one or yourself, is that considered equal force? Could you draw either or? And if so, then why carry both? Um, just want to know your opinion on that. Hope to hear from you, Jack. Thank you. Love what you do with the show, and um, hope to hear from you. Well, it's a good question. Let's start out with a karambit, and I think that is the right way to pronounce it, by the way. I'm not a big fan of a karambit. A karambit is generally a knife uh, um, that has a curved blade, uh, so it comes out and it comes to a sharp point, but the, the point is curved over kind of like a, a hawksbill uh, style, and it has a, a curved, conformed handle and usually a hole Uh, that the little finger would go through if you were holding it in a traditional style uh, with the knife out from the front. Uh, you could also hold it with uh, the ring finger through there with a reverse grip. And they look cool, and a lot of people talk about hook maneuvers and things with them and slicing people up or whatever. And in a certain, I guess, close quarters, uh, hidden use, they might have a pretty decent effect, but I don't think there's much you can do with one. Uh, that, uh, that, that you couldn't do with a right, more regular pattern knife that's a lot more versatile, especially as an EDC knife. Um, generally these are fixed blade knives as well, so you're looking at having one that, uh, Uh, maybe would be uh, used in a neck knife configuration, so it's going to be a smaller knife. If you did need it for defense, it's a smaller knife. Personally, um, I tend to carry a neck knife at all times since I've become a fan of them, and it's my utility go-to everyday knife that when I need to cut something, because it's very, very convenient to pull out of your shirt and be able to use it and put it right back there and not set it down and misplace it for utility purposes. And most of what I would ever need to do, I can do with a small neck knife that carries well. Um, I usually also always carry a folding knife on me. Um, my favorite go-to folder is made by Columbia River Knife Company. It's the M2114SF. 
out of all the knives they make, the Kit Carson design uh, on, on that frame, it's the one I think is the most versatile. It has a large uh, spear point with a good curve to it. It makes it a good defensive tool. It also is small enough to be usable for a lot of utility purposes. It's got a small piece of blade that's serrated for cutting things like cordage and things like that, and I know that will always cut even if the knife gets dull from other uses. It's certainly big enough to be used for defense and, and to be effective in that. Uh, it has a pocket open on draw. When you open it, it immediately, uh, when you take it out of your pocket, if you uh, have it set the right way, and they pretty much set it set the other way probably for liability issues, you flip the clip around. When you open it, it immediately opens, and it's a, it's a very smooth process, um, and I like that knife. It's a bit of a bigger folding knife. Uh, sometimes when I want to carry something a little bit smaller on my person, a little less conspicuous, uh, I have a Cold Steel American Lawman. That's what I actually have on me right now. Um, it's a good knife. It's, it was made with military and police in mind. Actually, police, I should say, law enforcement in mind. It's a really great thin profile. The handle feels good. Um, it's an easy knife to keep sharp. It's not a very large blade, but it's certainly large enough. And I, I would carry any of those before uh, these curved blade, cool-looking movie knives uh, that are fixed blades and hard to carry a large one inconspicuously. Um, and I don't find that much utility uh, in, in the Karambit. Um I don't. I know some martial arts guys go, if you knew what you could do to slice me, yeah, I know. But you know what? A knife is not just for slicing people up. On that note, the second part of the question, if you are in a situation where you feel that you are threatened physically to the point where you need to utilize force and you pull out a knife or a gun, by the law they are considered equivalent force. They're both considered lethal force options. And once you've done that, you've escalated the conflict to a level where the other side can kill you and say, I was defending myself and my own life and make a pretty good case for it. And as Masada Yub said, when you shoot somebody, even in a good shoot, a legitimate, your life was threatened shoot, the bad guy's laying on the ground dead doing a pretty good job, even though he's the bad guy and you're the victim, he's doing a pretty good job of impersonating a victim. And if you slice somebody's guts open with a knife, they're going to be doing a pretty good job of uh, pretending to be a victim. And if they're still alive, they're going to might be able to do a pretty good story about how they were the victim. Additionally, anybody that's on the outside of this conflict that observes you with a knife in your hand in a conflict with another human being uh, that's not fully aware of what's going on is uh, in some ways right to assume that you're the bigger threat in the conflict. So a knife is to be deployed only at the same level. Uh, requirements that you would deploy a gun. It's not considered a lesser implement of force. It's considered just as lethal, which is why if someone were to pull a knife on you and attempt to kill you with it and you shot them with a gun, it would can be considered a good shoot if all the facts on the ground added up that this person did mean to, to do you harm with a knife. You're right to use lethal force because you're defending against lethal force. And um, so... Why would you carry both? Why not one or the other? Well, because, simply put, they both have different attributes and different um, situations where one may be beneficial to the other, and a gun is a gun. It only serves one real purpose, to make bullets go downranged. Um, a knife has a lot of utility beyond what a gun does. That said, there's states where you can have a concealed carry permit, and you can carry a gun, and you can't carry a knife over a certain dimension. 
And a concealed knife over a certain dimension would be illegal even for a concealed weapons holder, a permit holder to have, even though they could be walking around. So you could be walking around with, you know, a nine millimeter. In fact, you could have two of them. There's no limit on how many you're allowed to carry, uh, under your permit. Not that any of any state that I know that says, well, you can only carry one gun if you're a concealed carry holder. So you could be carrying two guns and one knife and the knife could be a felony. So you need to know your local laws when it comes to that. The problem with a knife for defense, in my experience, it's actually more difficult to defend your need to use it than with a gun. Because if you, the, you understand it's the mind of the juror. You had the ability to inflict multiple wounds because you generally don't kill somebody with a single wound from a knife. And you didn't have the ability to extract yourself from the situation. I mean, if a woman's being, uh, you know, somebody's forcing her to the ground to attempt to rape her, she managed to get her hands on a knife and gives a guy a few in the kidneys, that may hold up pretty well. But if it's some type of a conflict, uh, the guy was trying to rob me. The guy's still alive. He says, no, I wasn't. This guy attacked me with a knife. Generally speaking, a knife, once pulled, needs to be used. And the karambit thing with the hole in it, it's going to be harder for somebody to disarm you. Let me tell you something. I know people that are skilled at disarming people with a knife. And a person that's skilled at doing that will pull that knife out of your hand as fast as any other knife. So the, the concept that it'll be hard for somebody to take away from you, somebody that doesn't know how to take a knife away from somebody is going to get cut to shit trying to take a knife away. And somebody that does is going to take it away from you. And the guys that I know that can take the knife away from you, if you have that thing, you're probably going to have one of your fingers or most multiple fingers broken uh, when it's pulled away from you. So and if you're dealing with that guy and you pull a knife on him, you're dead. I'm sorry. That's the people that are that good. You're going to end up dead by pulling a knife. A knife is something that I say is kind of a last resort self-defense weapon. When you have nothing else, the situation has put you into a predicament for it. It's not what I would carry around as a defensive tool. It would never be my first choice for a defensive tool. If I lived in a state where it was actually legal for me to carry a knife and illegal for me to carry a gun, I might change my mind about that. I really might. But the other thing, that a gun gives you that a knife doesn't is in many instances the ability to disarm the threat without engaging the threat. And this is what I mean. We've had people write in with scenarios just like this. Walking back out to my car, it was parked out in the distance somewhere for some reason in a place that really wasn't a great place to do it. Actual two or three different people have had this exact scenario. I get there, there's two or three men sitting on my car, they're offering to help me or something like that, and basically they're looking to jack the guy. Say, and I, we've had people that were basically told, you know, you're going to do what we say and things like that. Guy says, okay, and out comes the 45. And all of a sudden, everybody's in agreement that it would be best for those three dudes that were sitting on the hood of your car to leave. They get gun equals dead. And they know that you can shoot them from 20 feet away if you have to. And they know the time it takes you to pull that trigger is significantly less than the time it takes for them to run over and grab you. Three guys are standing there, and you go, pull out the knife. You might be that good. You really don't want the conflict. And they don't know it, and they're more likely to still engage in the conflict. The knife is less of a deterrent in that situation. Now, certain criminal behavior, a knife is a bigger deterrent. In some situations, when a criminal is using a knife, 
it can actually be a, a, a bigger deterrent to keep somebody from screaming. It's 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 kind of a weird thing, but in the in the 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 the, the situation that we've seen happen multiple times, again, some sort of uh, basically a, we're going to rough you up and get what we want out of you scenario. Uh, the two or three goons that that stake out a car because they saw it parked near an overpass and realized it was a good ambush spot, just waited on the guy to come back, or they were busy cleaning it out when he got back and caught them. Um, it's just a better deterrent. So. That's why I'd carry a gun over a knife. I carry a knife everywhere I go, and the last reason is defense. It doesn't mean it's not there. It doesn't mean I don't know how to use it. It doesn't mean if I had no other choice that I wouldn't. But what it means is it's there for a lot of other reasons, and a straight blade profile or uh, a more utility-oriented profile blade is probably a better defensive weapon, a better all-around tool, and can still be used just as effectively as a defensive weapon. If I wanted to carry a knife for defensive purposes, and that was its primary reason, I would probably stick with something like the uh, M21 14SF, because uh, it has a pretty good spear point profile to it, and a pretty good sweep up of the blade at the end of it, and uh, would be quite effective in a slashing uh, style, but I would probably lean toward more of a Tanto-style blade because the Tanto blade allows for uh, a slice to be quite vicious without actually worrying about the orientation of the blade. You can do a standard slice, but that upswept edge can, can, can go quite deep uh, in, a, in a slicing move, which sometimes would be necessary. Um, I'm not big on talking a lot about knife fighting, are using knives for defense because I think there's so much misinformation out there about it. And I think unless you really understand it, it leads to a lot of potential legal liability. And it's almost never the case that you would be in a conflict where you'd be better off with a knife than a gun as an average person, as a well-trained person, you might be, you might be, but in most instances, there is an opportunity to defuse the situation. And the gun is generally better for that. If we can not be in physical contact with each other, and I perceive you as a threat, I am much more likely to defer the conflict with a gun than a knife. If I catch you beating some woman trying to take her purse in a parking lot, and I draw down on you, it's probably going to have a better effect than if I'm standing there holding my knife and telling you to leave her alone. We have to get engaged with each other for that knife to be useful, unless I whip it at you, which case if I miss, you can pick it up and throw it back at me or stab me with it. It's not a good idea. But if I'm standing there and I can back away from you with that gun and draw down on you, I don't even have to draw down. I can have that gun in a, in a forward-ready position and give you a little uh, wake-up call. Hey, buddy, knock it off. Let go over. I've already called the police, right? And i got to be really careful even in that situation. i got to make a big judgment call. How do I know it's not, an, like, like Mossad said, how do, I know it's not, how, do I know, uh, how do I know that it's not the case that that guy might be an undercover cop doing a drug bust? I don't. It all depends. I've got to make a judgment in those situations. But there are plenty of times when the mere presence of a gun has stopped an attack. 
And I don't think it's happened quite as much with a knife because there's a certain amount of male bravado in a lot of criminals. And I thought, I'll just take that knife away from him and stab him with it. And a knowledge that it was his knife. So if I'm actually caught, it was self-defense. He, I had no choice. He tried to kill me. I turned his own weapon back on him. And the other side of that with a knife for defense is it does come down a lot of times to who's stronger, who's a better fighter. With a gun, especially if I have a certain amount of distance between us, a hundred-pound, weak woman that can barely see but see straight enough to shoot straight, put a couple holes in you before you put a hand on her. That's why the gun's the equalizer, and that's why it's the superior tool for the application that you're talking about. Sorry to have a long answer, but that one's got a lot of misinformation around it, and I hope I've cleared some up today. If you want the truth about knife fighting, in straight-up, real, grisly, true terms, then the guy you want to read is a guy named Mark McYoung. Mark Mc, M-A-C-Y-O-U-N-G, capital Y. Um, that's the guy from No Nonsense Self-Defense. He is, to me, one of the only people, the only people that's really in the industry talking about it and talking about training with it and talking about where it is and, and how, how to use a knife and when to use it and when not to use it. And uh, about one of the only people that's a professional in the training world of knife and knife defense um, that I would, I would recommend is Mark McYoung. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd You don't have to live the way they tell you
Yeah.